So there's a lot of great athletes in American culture that are worthy of our respect and love. Muhammad Ali, Michael Jordan, Roger Staubach, all kinds of great athletes. And right up there near the top is Joey Chestnut. Any of you know who Joey Chestnut is? This past week, Joey Chestnut performed and won his 11th straight hot dog eating contest. Joey Chestnut is the 11-time champion, and uh, in 10 minutes, Joey Chestnut this year set a new record, breaking his own record. He ate 74 hot dogs. In 10 minutes, right up there with Muhammad Ali, in my opinion. Uh, Joey Chestnut, I, I only know about this because it was on ESPN, apparently, and ESPN reported it. And um, the fact that this is televised on live TV, can I just ask you, what does this say about our culture? <laughs> I mean... Don't answer that out loud. It says a lot of things, but one thing it says undoubtedly is that our culture is not a culture of moderation, right? Our culture is captured by the power of our immediate desires and cravings. And you know, it's not just Joey Chestnut. If I'm honest with myself, I'm very much the same way. I mean, how many times have I been watching a sporting event late in the night and seen a commercial for pizza and thought, I've got to have pizza now? and ordered pizza. All of us, from time to time, especially in the culture in which we live, become slaves to our most immediate and and our strongest desires and cravings. So moderation is an idea that is very foreign to American life. It's not something we have much, if any, affinity for in our world, but it is a part of a healthy spiritual life. Moderation and fasting is necessary for our spiritual formation. Now, we're in the middle of this series on spiritual formation. And remember, the purpose of this series is to help us, who are followers of Jesus Christ, to help us understand how we can live as faithful followers of Jesus in a post-Christian age. And our role as Christians is not to try to reacquire power in our culture and take over the country or the world for Jesus. I don't think that was ever our role. That's probably somewhat controversial, but that's not this point of this series. It's certainly not our role now. Our role as Christians is to live faithfully present and countercultural lives in our society, loving God, loving our neighbors, loving people in our workplaces, loving our families. And for that to happen, these practices of spiritual formation are going to be essential. So we've covered a few disciplines thus far. We've talked about hospitality and scripture and community. And today we're going to cover the disciplines of fasting and moderation, which are closely related. And as we study this discipline together, here's how I want to summarize. Here's the main idea coming from those passages that Oliver read for us earlier. So here's the big point. Constant moderation and occasional fasting help us hunger for God so that we might receive God himself as our reward. Okay, and I'm going to break that down into three parts. First, constant moderation and occasional fasting. Second, those things help us hunger for God. Third, so that we might receive God himself as our reward. So first, let's talk about the ideas of moderation and fasting. It's important for you to see that the Bible does say that spiritual formation involves a life of moderation. That's what the Apostle Paul is addressing, in part, in his first letter to the church in Corinth, that last text that Oliver read, 1 Corinthians 6, 12, and 13. Now, just a little bit of background. The Corinthian church was struggling with a lot of things, and Paul addresses numerous issues that they were struggling with in this letter. 
And that's what we see going on here in chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Your translations of the Bible probably, and they should, have two phrases that are in quotations. All things are lawful for me, there in verse 12. And then the second sentence, all things are lawful for me, is repeated again. And then verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now those are in quotes because these were almost certainly slogans that the Corinthian Christians in that church had adhered to or believed in that Paul is quoting and then responding to in his letter. He's responding to these slogans of theirs. The first, all things are lawful. The second, food is meant for the stomach. The stomach is meant for food, okay? So basically, the Corinthians' thinking is... If I have a desire for something, I should gratify it. I should gratify it as quickly as possible. (laughs) If I want a cheeseburger, I can get a cheeseburger. If I want ice cream, I can get ice cream. If I want a beer, I can get a beer. All of these things are allowable, the Corinthians were saying. They would say, I am free in Jesus. Now, there's a lot in the Bible that is culturally foreign to us 2,000 years later. That's hard for us to understand. This is not one of those things. This is very easy for us to understand because it's something, as we saw, saw just a minute ago, that our own culture and that we struggle with as well. This is an incredibly common thought in the Western world. We particularly think this about a few basic human behaviors, Eating and drinking, sexuality, and entertainment. Those three things in particular. And really, the basic worldview of the Western world says that at the end of the day, we're basically highly evolved animals that have physical desires, physical appetites, and that there is nothing wrong with satisfying those appetites. So if I want sex and it is consensual, go for it. If I want to drink and I don't endanger anyone else, go for it. If I want to be entertained and I can afford it, I'm free to do it. That's what the Corinthians thought. And that's what we often think. But what does Paul say in response to this? Verse 12, not all things are helpful. Verse 12, I will not be enslaved or dominated by anything. And then in response to verse 13's quote, he says, the body, God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So to summarize everything Paul says in response to these Corinthian slogans, Paul says, Christians are to live with moderation. He's saying that the fact of Christian freedom, the fact of Christian freedom is not therefore license to gluttony. It doesn't mean we can do whatever we want whenever we feel like it. The Bible encourages us here and in many other places not to use our freedom as an opportunity to cause others or ourselves to stumble back into the slavery we were in before we knew Jesus Christ. And I want you to see that Paul does not tell Christians to pursue moderation primarily for their physical health. That's not his main motive, although that is an important part of it all. And he also doesn't say we should pursue moderation because we need to be sort of stoic or self-controlled. Those are not the reasons. Those are true. 
But that's not what Paul says. Paul says that we who follow Jesus are to pursue moderation with our appetites because we can very quickly become enslaved. We can very quickly become enslaved to things that are good, but that we want to make ultimate. Paul knows that humans are extremely prone to excess. They're extremely prone to taking God's good gifts, good things like food and drink and sex and entertainment, and abusing them. And he's saying that abuse leads to slavery. Now, the gospel of Jesus Christ says that we are no longer slaves. The chains of our bondage have been broken through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We are free in Jesus Christ. We were once enslaved to the unbearable demands of the law and to our sinful flesh, but we're not any longer. And so Paul says now to live immoderately is to go back again to a different kind of slavery, but it's slavery nonetheless. So Paul says moderation is to be a constant formative pattern in the life of the follower of Jesus. And just to hone in on this for a little bit more, there's two major, major areas in which we need to consider this in our own lives. I need to consider it. You need to consider it. The first is in the area of food and drink. Food and drink. Now, most of us, I'm not a physician, but I bet they would agree. And if they don't, they're wrong and I'm right. Most of us eat far more than we need. We eat more than we need to eat for the most part. And often we will, many of us, use drinks, alcohol, caffeine, Coke, or dessert, cookies, cake, whatever, in excess as well. And the point is that these things, when used in excess, dull us. They dull us spiritually. The way of the Christian is to enjoy these good gifts, but not let these good gifts own us. And that is what the Spirit has freed us for. So one major area where we must consider moderation is in the area of food and drink. And the second major area is entertainment. The area of entertainment. Uh, Neil Postman wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death in 1985. So 30 years ago, 1985. And it's a prophetic book. It's actually terrifying. I want to read you one quote. Listen to what he wrote 30 years ago. Americans no longer talk to each other. They entertain each other. They do not exchange ideas. They exchange images. Remember, this is before cell phones. (laughs) They do not argue with propositions. They argue with good looks, celebrities, and commercials. Now, that is American culture in a nutshell. And it's hard for us to enjoy moderation in the area of entertainment because the very structure of so many of the things that entertain us are designed for full immersion. Social media, the Internet itself, video games, cable news, talk radio, all of those things, sports, are designed not to just dabble in. They prey on our sensibilities towards excess. They're designed for us to fully immerse ourselves. They're designed for immoderation, not for moderation. And so it's extremely difficult for us to enjoy these things with moderation in our lives. But Paul tells us that we must be aware of our propensity towards excess, and we must fight against it as best we can. 
There's going to be other opportunities in the coming months for us to talk more about these things together as a church family. But the bottom line for this morning is this. Moderation is to be a constant. But let's be honest, that's really, really hard. Isn't it? It's really, really hard to live a life of enjoying God's good gifts, but not letting God's good gifts own us or enslave us because we've made them ultimate. And there's some practical things we can do to live moderately that I would like us to discuss in another teaching context sometime. But for our purposes this morning, we should see that God has given us some tools to help us live moderate lives and not excessive lives. And remember how countercultural this is going to be. It's going to attract people to the way of Jesus simply because we're different from the culture around us. And one major tool is the spiritual discipline and privilege of fasting. Fasting. Fasting is designed to help us curb our appetites. To help us curb our appetites for this world and to long for God instead. So what is fasting? If you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably heard of that before. Maybe if you're not a Christian, you know what it is. Richard Foster, in his book, The Celebration of Discipline, he defines fasting like this. He says, it is a Christian's voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. Now, I'm going to expand that definition because we can fast from things other than food. So here's my definition. Fasting is the voluntary denial of a normal function for the sake of intense spiritual activity. The voluntary denial of a normal function for the sake of intense spiritual activity. And there's other two pa- those other two passages that Oliver read for us from Matthew's gospel tell us a little bit about fasting. They both come from Jesus himself. And I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't command fasting. It's not commanded anywhere in the Bible. Uh, he doesn't command it in Matthew 6 and he doesn't command it in Matthew 9. But he does assume that his disciples will fast. In Matthew 6, notice he says, when you fast, do it this way. In other words, he's assuming followers of mine are going to fast from time to time. And in Matthew 9, Jesus says, people don't fast while the bridegroom is with them. That is, while I'm here in my earthly ministry, my disciples don't fast because I'm with them. But when I'm taken away, verse 15, then, that's now, by the way, Jesus is gone. He's, we're in between his first and second comings. And while the bridegroom is not with us, verse 15, then they, the followers of Jesus, will fast. So Jesus assumes that fasting will be a regular part of the lives of his disciples. So why? Why should moderation and occasional fasting be a part of our spiritual formation? Let's answer that second. The reason is because these things help us hunger for God. Fasting helps us hunger for God. Now, what does that mean? That means two things, okay? It means first that fasting helps us to see that we are often hungering for worldly things. And we should qualify this. When I say hungering for worldly things, I mean that we often have an inordinate desire for worldly things. And that's manifest in the way we treat things like food and drink and entertainment. Now, those are all good things, as I've mentioned Food is not bad, sex is not bad, drink is not bad, entertainment is not bad. They're all good, but they have a particular place. They are a subsidiary. They're not meant or designed to bring any of us ultimate satisfaction. They're not meant to bring us ultimate hope or delight. Uh, They're meant to be secondary. 
But we tend to fall in the trap of believing that these things, if we pursue them as much as possible, will bring us ultimate hope or satisfaction. And when we live our lives seeking to satisfy one hunger after another, to satisfy one craving after another, what we're doing is deadening, we're deadening our hunger for God. We're dulling our spiritual senses. Remember when Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. He goes 40 days and 40 nights without food. And the devil comes to him and tips him. And Jesus quotes to him the Old Testament repeatedly. And one thing he quotes is from Deuteronomy where he says, Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. So fasting is designed in part, and fasting is good in part, because it reveals to us where our hungers have gone astray. Listen to Richard Foster. Here's what he says. More than any other single discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. This is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We cover up what is inside us with food and other good things, But in fasting, these things surface. If pride controls us, it will be revealed almost immediately. Anger, bitterness, jealousy, strife, fear, if they are within us, they will surface during fasting. At first, we will rationalize that our anger is due to our hunger. Then we know that we are, but then we know that we are angry because the spirit of anger is within us. We can rejoice in this knowledge, though, because we know that healing is available through the power of Christ. So fasting helps us because it shows us where our hungers have gone astray. But fasting also helps us hunger for God because it sharpens, it sharpens our hunger for God. Fasting, you see, is designed to be a physical reminder, a physical reminder of our deeper spiritual need of our deeper spiritual hunger that only the living God can satisfy. Now, this is weird for evangelical Christians because we disassociate the body from our spiritual lives. But the way our body feels tells us something, really, it tells us a lot about what's going on spiritually because we're one person. We're body and soul united. And so we fast to remind ourselves of our real and true need. When we fast, we're saying, I do not live for my appetites. We're saying, I set aside physical desires for a time so that I can seek God in prayer, so that I can desire God and God's blessing. And so fasting is a tool that we use to battle the relentless stream of appetites that come at us all the time. It's a way we demonstrate that we don't live by bread alone. And so when we fast, our body gets weaker. And that reminds us that we don't live by our strength. We don't live by our provision. We don't live by our planning. So fasting really is a means to an end. It's a way that we say goodbye to the power of our possessions so that we may give ourselves to the reign of God. And so anytime you fast, if you fasted before you know this, you're going to feel hunger pangs. And a, a pastor of mine, a guy I worked with in Tucson, used to always say that uh, when you're fasting, you feel those hunger pangs. Use that as an opportunity to go to the Lord in prayer. Anytime you feel the pain of going without food, consider that to be like an alarm going off in your body to take you to the Lord. And so fasting is a constant physical reminder of our deeper spiritual need. 
it leads us to ask ourselves, am I really hungry for God? Do I long for God? Or have I been content with his gifts and not with the giver? So a couple of things practically, okay? When is fasting appropriate? So when should you fast if you're a Christian? Practically, what would be appropriate times? Well, the Bible gives us all kinds of examples of fasting, but there's three main times in our spiritual lives when we should consider fasting. Three big times. The first is to more clearly discern God's will. We fast to more clearly discern God's will. Acts chapter 13 has a great story. This is when the church at Antioch is getting ready to send missionaries out into uh, the Roman world. And in Acts 13 verses 1 and 2, we read that the leaders in the church there fasted and worshiped the Lord. And then the Holy Spirit told them, set aside for me Barnabas and Saul. So that's a pretty big moment. It's a moment when the apostle Paul is commissioned and sent as a missionary. There's all kinds of examples in that in the Bible. If you have a big decision coming up in your life, or if you're unclear about the Lord's will or the Lord's direction in some area of your life, that is an appropriate time for you to fast. Uh, Just as a personal example, in 2012, when we were considering uh, potentially moving to San Antonio to start Christ Church, and I had four or five other friends in Tucson, where we lived at the time, that all had kind of major life decisions right on the horizon. And we committed to two or three days of fasting. By the way, I should not have done that. I have not fasted regularly in my life. I should have done like two or three meals. But I did two or three days because I'm prone to excess even in fasting. And, um, and so we did two or three days of fasting and asked the Lord and spent time together and prayed and asked the Lord to dis- for discernment, for the Holy Spirit to reveal to us what it was he was calling each of us to do. So that's an appropriate time for you in your own life to fast. If there's something in your life right now that you're unsure about or that you need God's discernment on, perhaps the Spirit is asking you to take some time and fast. Second, we fast to express grief. We fast to express grief. After Jonathan, David's best friend, Saul's son, is killed, in battle, in 2 Samuel 1, David calls all of Judah, all of Israel, to fast as a way of expressing their grief to God, to express the depth of their feelings. So it's just as appropriate to add fasting to your grief-stricken prayers as it is to add tears to your grief-stricken prayers. So if that's an area in your life where you are right now, where you're grieving something, where you have suffering that is making you sorrowful, it's completely appropriate and helpful to seek the Lord through fasting. So we fast to discern God's will, we fast to express grief, and then lastly, we fast to express repentance and return to God. To express repentance and return to God. The best example of this in all of the Bible is the book of Jonah. We know the first half of that story really well. God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh, and Jonah says, no, I'm going to go this way. So he goes the opposite way. God sends the storm. God sends the fish. Swallowed by the fish, the fish throws Jonah up on the beach in Nineveh. And then the second half of the story is interesting too. Jonah goes and he preaches the gospel in Nineveh. And many, many people in Nineveh believe the gospel. Wouldn't you know it? God sends someone and the person preaches and God actually works through their preaching and they actually get converted. It's amazing how that works. And so the people of Nineveh repent and believe. And what we read in Jonah 3, 
is the description of their repentance. And here's what we read. Let me just read this for you from Jonah 3. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and the nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So if you are in a period in your life where you're perhaps struggling with a persistent sin or where you've been grieving your rebellion against God or where you have a broken relationship and you know you need to turn away from that sin, to repent and return to God and experience his renewing grace again, fasting is appropriate. So those are the three major areas in our lives where the Spirit of God asks us as we are formed spiritually to fast, to consider it. And then very practically, if you want to fast, how should you start? I'm just going to assume that most of us are not experienced fasters. I know some of you are, actually. I'm not, and I'm assuming most of us are. So three real quick things about how to start. The first thing you should do is discern and pray. If God is asking any of these above things that I've just mentioned of you, then a fast is appropriate. Your fasting should always have a purpose. Because remember, fasting is a means to an end. The end is that you may be more like Jesus, that your hunger for this world will be dulled and that your hunger for God will be sharpened. And so if any of those things that I mentioned are going on in your life right now and you thought, huh, I never thought about fasting, that's not me. Do you know that? That's the actual Holy Spirit of God who really is here right now speaking to you through the scripture and perhaps calling you or encouraging you to consider fasting. So discern and pray. Secondly, start small. It's probably best to start with one meal. I would recommend lunch. Depending on the flow of your days, it might be different. Perhaps you can decide, I'm going to fast every Wednesday for lunch for a month. And instead of eating lunch, I'm going to read my Bible and pray and seek God's face about whatever issue the Lord has put on your heart. So discern and pray. Start small. Talk to one of your physicians if you need to talk to a physician, if you have particular health-related issues. And then thirdly, the last recommendation is to fast in community. Perhaps there will be times in our life as a church where God will call all of us to fast and the elders will lead us forward in that, a time of fasting and prayer. But it's always better to fast with others. Maybe it can be your family, your spouse. Maybe it can be some close friends. Maybe your community group should fast about something that's going on in your life because we do this in community to encourage one another. And by the way, most of the fasting we see in the Bible is not solitary. It's almost always community-based fasting. So we fast to help us dull our hungers for the world, to live moderately, and to sharpen our hunger for God. Okay, a last thing, real quickly. We do all this so that we might receive God himself. Jesus, back in that Matthew 6 passage in the Sermon on the Mount, says that if you fast, there's a reward. The very last thing he says is, your father who sees in secret will reward you. So there's a promise attached to fasting. Now, to be clear, Jesus does not mean here that our fasting with God is some sort of transaction. So that 
we get this arrangement that if we give God a couple of days of good fasting, then he's going to give us what we want. That actually goes directly against the purpose of fasting. The reward is not some like thing that you desire from God. The reward is God. The reward is an increased hunger and spiritual appetite for the one that we were made to know and to commune with. The idea is that fasting has its own reward in that it draws us closer to God himself. Hungering for God is its own reward. Longing for God and yearning for God is its own reward. So the reward of our fast is not because we've done some spiritual service for God. It's because all of us were made to know and commune with God. And fasting draws us back into that relationship. Jesus says just a few verses earlier in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So at the end of the day, fasting's reward is that it sharpens our hunger for God in the gospel. Fasting reminds us that God loves us. Fasting reminds us that God has given to us Jesus. That God has given to us the Spirit. That God will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Fasting reminds us of God's presence and God's protection. It reminds us that God will be our strength. God will be our shield. That God is our portion and our lot. That all of our contentment and satisfaction is found in him. God is the reward of our fasts. Just as God is the reward of all of our devotion to him. As C.S. Lewis has famously said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That's what fasting tells us. Fasting draws us closer to the very heart of God. It draws us closer to the very heart of the gospel. It helps us to say no to the immediate cravings of our earthly appetites and say yes to the God who has given us himself fully in Jesus Every one of our hearts has a hole in it. And we were all made to have that hole filled by knowing and loving God. Now, the problem is we try and fill that hole with something else, by worshiping other things. The issue in your life is not that you don't worship God. The issue is that you worship something else more than God. Whatever you're worshiping the most, whatever is most important, is what you're trying to fill your heart with. But that can only be filled with God can only be filled with God's grace to you in Jesus. And so the Spirit works through these disciplines like fasting to help form us more and more into people who know God and are loved by God and can dwell safely with God both now and forever. So I want to encourage you to, if the Spirit perhaps lays it on your heart, consider fasting. Our elders would be happy to talk with you more about that if you would like. I'd encourage you to maybe talk with your family about that because it's an important practice, especially in a consumer culture like we live in, to more and more hunger for the God who loves us and who has given us himself in Jesus. Let's pray.